0: Congress would never, ever fix this problem, because they have one interest and one interest only, and this is to stay in power.
1: You tell them, Arnold.
2: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs.
0: to the right, here I am Stuck in the middle with you Yep Yes, i stuck in From the Pacifica
1: Radio here. in Los Angeles This is the broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA In Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV 102.3, in Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, amongst other very fine affiliates, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is an honor and a privilege to have you with us. Coming up, uh, and for me to be with you, frankly, uh, coming up on Tuesday at the U.S. Supreme Court, even as the nation was and is still reeling from the worst mass shooting in modern U.S. history, And some 3.4 million U.S. citizens in Puerto Rico were and are still fighting for their lives after one of the worst, if not the worst, hurricanes to devastate the island. On Tuesday, the nine justices of the Republicans' stolen 5-4 U.S. Supreme Court were hearing oral arguments in Gil v. Whitford, Now, you may or may not know that name, but it is a case which small-D democracy advocates see as one of the most, if not the most important uh, cases ever to be heard in front of the court, at least for many, many years. The case in which uh, a lower three-judge federal court panel found that the state of Wisconsin had unconstitutionally used secret techniques to unfairly, and unlawfully gerrymander state districts to give Republicans a virtually unbeatable partisan advantage over Democrats. Uh, the the case uh, the lower court judge uh, judges three judges uh, b- overruled those maps, ordered new maps drawn because uh, th- this partisan advantage for Republicans was unbeatable even where a majority of voters had voted for capital D Democratic Party representation. Now, while racial gerrymandering has long been held as unconstitutional, Republicans have frequently argued the electoral maps drawn up by GOP majority state legislatures after taking the majority of state houses following the 2010 census that those maps were perfectly legal. Because while they may have favored Republicans in a partisan way, they were not racially discriminatory. Well, after the federal court ruled that uh, partisan gerrymanders are also a violation of the right of Democratic voters in this case to be represented by Democrats, a split U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments on Tuesday from both sides in that case, and we'll have the man who literally wrote the book on the GOP's 2010 gerrymandering, who who also was present in the courtroom on Tuesday. He'll be joining us shortly to explain what happened there, what all of this means, and what all of it could mean for the next several decades of whatever is left of American democracy at this point. If uh, At least if swing vote Justice Anthony Kennedy decides to join the stolen right wing majority at the Supreme Court in this case. David Daly joins us shortly for that. But quickly first, a few updates on some of the other important stories uh, that have, uh, well that we've been following, that have taken a lot of the oxygen uh, out of the air this week, understandably. A well respected NYU professor, Jay Rosen, uh, media professor. He tweeted out uh, a link to Toronto star uh, Daniel Dale's coverage. Of Trump's short visit to hurricane-torn Puerto Rico on Tuesday as an example of how, quote, how you report on Trump without pretending there is anything normal about this president. And uh, I think he's right here, Desi Doyne. I don't know if you saw Dan Dale's coverage.
0: I have been following Daniel Dale of the Toronto Star very closely because he, he really does just very baldly tell it like it is. Tells the facts uh, yeah.
1: without pretending this is normal. Here's how uh, uh, Dan Dale's coverage of uh, the Toronto Star's Washington Bureau uh, starts out today. He accused Puerto Ricans of throwing the federal budget, quote, out of whack. He suggested Puerto Rico had not experienced a, quote, real catastrophe like Hurricane Katrina since a mere 16 people had been confirmed dead, at least at that time. He told a family of hurricane victims to, quote, have a good time. He tossed paper towels to another group of victims in a church as if he was shooting basketball free throws. He told a third group of victims that they don't need flashlights any longer. Though 90% of the island was still without power, more than that, I believe it's 95% still, he refused to speak to the mayor of San Juan and, as usual, Donald Trump congratulated himself. Facing withering criticism for his delayed and then belligerent response to the Puerto Rican hurricane crisis, Donald Trump's Tuesday visit to San Juan was a chance to begin to repair the wounds he had caused over a week of tweeted insults. Instead, he casually tore them open, a smile on his face. Trump showed none of the scripted gravitas of his somber Monday response to the massacre in Las Vegas. Speaking without notes, Trump behaved as if the ongoing crisis had long since been fixed by his own doing. It was vintage Trump, writes Dale informal, freewheeling, self centered, detached from facts, wholly unlike the behavior of any other modern president. His supporters applauded, again, pointedly uh, uh, pointing to his authenticity and moments of empathy. Puerto Ricans, already upset with him before he landed, were infuriated. He takes two weeks to visit a disaster zone where 3.5 million Americans live. He arrives with a smile on his face, makes fun of the situation, shows no empathy, lies and lies on camera as he does 24-7, and then throws paper towel rolls to people in need as if he was playing go-fetch with dogs, said Joel Isaac, who's quoted by Dale. Isaac moved to New York from Puerto Rico three years ago. Most of Isaac's family, however, is still on the island. He said he never felt humiliated as a Puerto Rican until he watched Trump's visit. The pool reporter on scene said the crowd, quote, enjoyed Trump's NBA impression, throwing those paper towels. Other Puerto Ricans, however, found the display disrespectful. Does he think this is a show, a game? The first reaction that I had, why is he throwing things to Puerto Ricans like we're animals, said Francis Alvarado, a Puerto Rican whose husband spent three decades in the Navy about Trump's performance as a whole. She said it's shameful, it's degrading, it's insulting. Trump shook the hand of San Juan Mayor Carmen Yulín Cruz, who has repeatedly dispar- uh, who he has repeatedly disparaged as a poor leader and a Democratic partisan. Yulín Cruz said she told him, quote, this is about saving lives, it's not about politics. Trump did not respond to her and then pointedly ignored her. In fact, he did. Video shows that he went out of his way Uh, to not respond to those comments at all. Trump ended the visit with some additional applause for himself, writes Dale, quote, saying, uh, Trump said, quote, I think it meant a lot to the people of Puerto Rico that I was there. They really responded very nicely, and I guess it's one of the few times anybody has done this. From what I am hearing, it's the first time that a sitting president has done something like this. For her part, the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, Uh, Eulene Cruz denounced Trump's uh, Tuesday, uh, denounced him on Tuesday night after the visit to the island, calling him the miscommunicator in chief, calling him insulting. She said he was insulting to the people of Puerto Rico. Uh, That was hours after meeting Trump face to face at that brief meeting with Puerto Rican leaders and the president. Which uh, she described the meeting as a uh, PR 17 minute meeting, no exchange with anybody, with none of the mayors. And in fact, this terrible and abominable view of him throwing paper towels and throwing provisions at people, it really it does not embody the spirit of the American nation, you know. So, uh, she said he kind of minimized our suffering here by saying that Katrina was a real disaster, sort of implying this was not a real disaster because not many people have died here. Cruz said, well, you know what? They're dying. They don't have the medical resources. And indeed, they are dying. They are still dying. Uh, Shortly after Trump left the island, the governor's office announced that that uh, death toll of 16 had doubled to what is now at least at airtime last I checked Desi he I don't know if you've seen any uh, updates on this. Uh, But 34 dead was the last update that I saw.
0: That's the last that I have seen as well. But uh, they do say that it is expected to rise as they reach remote villages.
1: As they reach remote villages, as the island continues to suffer.
0: Without electricity and without clean water.
1: Uh, Right. Uh, So, I mean, there are still food and water shortages. Uh, And there's still only one of the island's hospitals uh, that is apparently fully functional, despite Trump's claims to uh, to the contrary. Uh, during his few hours-long visit that hospitals were up and uh, and open again. They are not. It is not uh, clear, and this is one of the reasons I'm covering it, 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 this is not clear to me whether Trump knows that he is lying or whether that this is a lie, whether he knows that or not, or if his people are simply misrepresenting what is actually going on in Puerto Rico to the President of the United States. I, I, I don't know. But it is not the rosy picture that Trump was presenting that, uh, hey, it's all great. Everybody's giving us A-plus scores. The hospitals are all back open. You don't even need these
0: flashlights
1: anymore. That is just not
0: true. Exactly. And and when he did an on-the-ground visit, it was in a wealthy suburb that had very little damage that, that the rest of the island has seen. They so were all brick
1: houses they're all were brick. They're all they were sturdy. They're all rich yep. people
0: in a gated community that he went to visit.
1: It was a gated community? It was community. a gated
0: community. So... But it's unclear if anyone has actually really given him the full story. If anyone is telling him what's actually happening, it's also unclear if he would actually care if they did.
1: There is so much going away, going on. This story is is going to quickly go away. The president has now done his visit. We're all moving on to other things. Uh, the uh, reportedly, the secretary of state Rex Tillerson uh, called Donald Trump a moron the uh, the State Department says that's not true. But, you know, everyone is chasing down that story today. And, of course, the story in Vegas, which I'll get to in a moment. But, uh, you know, no, it is not over what is going on in Puerto Rico. Much of the water has now receded, but people are still suffering. People are still uh, just making contact with federal officials for the first time in uh, remote areas, and that death toll has now doubled to 34. So, yeah, I'd say that's a real catastrophe, frankly. Uh, In Las Vegas, uh, a few quickly updated numbers, some updated numbers from the sheriff's office here after they had fluctuated a bit over the past 24 hours since the worst U.S. shooting in modern history. The coroner clarified there are, in fact, 58 who were killed Plus the shooter for the total of 59 dead after the incident. More than 550 were otherwise wounded, putting the total number of people shot close to 600 in what the sheriff's office describes as just, quote, nine to 11 minutes of gun spray from that uh, uh, automatic weapons that were modified to essentially be automatic gun spray from the 32nd floor of the Monterey. Bay Resort and Casino on a concert goers some 500 yards away. The shooter had 47 weapons in total, more than 20 of them with him in his hotel room. Uh, evidence uh, shows that he had clearly been, been planning for this uh, for some time, for some reason. He also owned some 12 what are called bump-fire stocks that essentially convert semi-automatic weapons that were legally purchased, 47 of them, uh, that converts them into automatic weapons. And yet, as uh, Politico reports today, the White House is seeking to delay any discussion of gun policy at all. As President Trump visits Las Vegas today... Uh, where he visited a hospital and he is uh, speaking with local officials. He was not expected to weigh in on any policy solutions um, while he's on this trip to Las Vegas. Uh, The White House official said with this investigation still in its early phases, we should avoid making sweeping policy decisions because, you know, uh, who knows why he did this? I've asked the question, does it actually matter why he did this? The fact that he was able to do this, that he was able to stockpile 47 weapons, thousands of rounds of ammo without triggering any sort of, I guess, paper trail whatsoever that uh, alerted officials to, you know, stop on by the house. Hey, what, what do you got? Well, why do you need those 47 weapons, sir? Why did, have you ordered thousands of rounds of ammo? Uh, Gun safety activists said that Trump was simply following the standard National Rifle Association playbook, which, of course, he was, by trying to delay the politics and policy piece of his response to the shooting, arguing that, you know, well, we just don't have enough facts on what happened to discuss policy uh, or legislation at this point. Shannon Watts, founder of gun safety advocate group Moms Demand Action Uh, which I believe was founded after Sandy Hook, uh, said, I don't remember not having the facts being a barrier for talking about terrorism or other crises we've experienced as a nation since Donald Trump was elected. She argued the goal is to not talk about this. That is the same goal and playbook that members of Congress are now taking, Republicans now anyway. Here's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell Uh, On Tuesday, responding uh, a full uh, almost two days after the shooting, responding uh, to reporters' questions on this. I think it's particularly inappropriate to politicize an event like this. It just happened within the last day and a half. It's entirely premature to be discussing about legislative solutions, if any. If any. I think that's key there. Yeah. Uh, it, It will always be, of course, too early to talk about legislative solutions for Republicans, at least when it comes to any, any sort of issues related to gun safety, despite the fact that a vast majority of their own voters would like to see something done. The lowest hanging fruit, like, you know, background checks for every gun purchase. But, of course, Republicans are dependent on the terrorist enabling NRA, National Rifle Association, the gun lobby. That's who the NRA is, the gun lobby. They are no longer, a, you know, the 100-year-old the uh, uh, gun safety club that they used to be. They rely on the NRA, Republicans do, in order to stay in power. Now, since yesterday's broadcast, the alleged shooter Steve Stephen Paddock, who is said to have killed himself after the SWAT team surrounded his hotel room, uh, reportedly, he wired $100,000 recently to uh, to the Philippines, where his girlfriend Marilou Danley was reportedly sent away by Paddock in the weeks before the shooting. On Tuesday, she returned to the states, where authorities are said to be questioning her at the uh, FBI office out here in Los Angeles today. Uh, in an interview with an Australian news outlet, her sisters say she knew absolutely nothing about the shooting. Um, or Paddock's plans uh, beforehand, that she was in love with Paddock. She's very upset and puzzled by what he is said to have done. And we still really have absolutely no clue what his motive was at this point. Frankly, I'm glad that we don't. I'm glad that we don't have uh, d- don't know a motive because frankly, uh, you know, had he been uh, an Islamic extremist, Well, a certain portion of the uh, of the country, you know, would have had an opinion about that and why we need to do X, Y or Z. Had he been a a Black Lives Matter activist, other, uh, you know, people would have had other thoughts. Uh, Had he been an abortion uh, rights and anti-abortion activist, uh, people might have you know, dismissed this or that. People would have been able to choose sides. Basically, right now, since nobody knows why the hell he did this, everybody everybody has to respond. We'll see if that changes uh, in the days ahead, if a motive is ever determined here. But I, I think, frankly, right now, no one is off the hook, or at least no one should be. But of course, uh, if you'd like action on gun safety issues from lawmakers, you're still going to have to vote in 2018. And if you're a Democrat, you're going to have to vote in much, much higher numbers than Republicans have, uh, have to do in order to hold on to majorities in the U.S. House of Representatives anyway. That, thanks to GOP's partisan schemes, said to be unlike anything Democrats have been able to do when it comes to gerrymandering that have resulted in Republicans winning majorities in the U.S. House and in state assemblies around the country, even in cases where Democrats receive many more votes. Yes, the Republicans still remain in the majority. We'll talk about that and the landmark case. Gil v. Whitford heard at the U.S. Supreme Court this week after a short break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast.
0: And thanks.
1: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Republicans are launching a new redistricting group with plans to fight more Democratic-drawn political maps in court, part of an expanded strategy to influence congressional and state legislative boundaries after the next census. That, according to Scott Bland at Politico last week, the new organization called the National Republican Redistricting Trust, or NRRT, will focus on data and legal efforts and, quote, serve as a central resource to coordinate and collaborate on redistricting For other party organizations and members, according to a memo announcing its formation, other Republican groups will continue their work on winning state offices that play a role in redistricting, which Republicans did to great effect in 2010, great effect for them at least, giving them control of the map drawing process in close to half of the states in the U.S. But NRRT senior advisor Guy Harrison said there is, quote, no doubt Republicans will be more aggressive in court after 2020 with more resources and early planning at their disposal. We are definitely going to back lawsuits and push in any way possible to have an even playing field in redistricting, especially in states that have already been drawn by Democrats, said Harrison. Such litigation has recently been more of a hallmark for Democrats who earlier this year launched their own redistricting group, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Republicans were in charge of the redistricting process in more states after the 2010 census, and Democrats have since sued to overturn GOP-drawn maps in Texas and Virginia and in other states, arguing that the states uh, had drawn those maps racially gerrymandered to dilute minority voting power. They have, to date, the Democrats won many of those cases regarding racial gerrymandering, with courts ordering districts redrawn for upcoming elections after finding the Republican-drawn maps to be in violation of the Voting Rights Act and other constitutional clauses. Of course, many of those federal court findings are still uh, being challenged, and in any event, A lot of those uh, court findings come nearly 10 years after the new Republican maps were drawn in the first place and officials elected based on those gerrymandered uh, maps have been serving in the years since despite their racially disproportionate uh, bias in uh, in those maps. But it's not only racial gerrymandering that has been used to increase Republican majorities at both the state and federal level. In what the New York Times describes as a case that could transform the American political landscape, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Gil v. Whitfield on uh, Whitford on Tuesday, a long-awaited case on partisan gerrymandering in the state of Wisconsin that could, depending on how the court decides here, upend congressional districts across the country Following the GOP takeover of state legislatures back in 2010 and their unprecedented use of sophisticated computer mapping to essentially rig congressional and state legislative seats with a partisan advantage almost impossible to overcome by voters and certainly by Democrats, even when they win the votes of a majority of voters in the states. This case, uh, Gil v. Whitford specifically looks at partisan maps drawn by the Wisconsin GOP, apparently secretly with the computer help, which were then approved and put into place by Republican Governor Scott Walker in 2011. So gerrymandered were these districts that in the election held in the state after the new district maps were adopted, Republicans won a little more than 48% of the statewide vote. But... They captured a 60 to 39 seat advantage in the state assembly, even though they only won 48 of percent of the statewide vote. Last year, a panel of three federal judges ruled two to one that Wisconsin's leaders went too far in using this secretive process for drawing these maps after the 2010 census, concluding that the plans were drawn to eliminate swing districts and create ones that were favorable to Republicans by packing most Democrats into just a few districts and then spreading the rest of them across others as a way to create more districts that were conducive to a GOP candidate. It worked. But that... Uh, That court found that the shape of the districts could not be explained by nonpartisan reasons and that the advantage given to Republicans would be enduring through the decade, even if Democrats outperformed Republicans at the polls, which in many cases they did. The uh, secret plans developed by Wisconsin Republicans showed that they could hang on to the majority of seats with with less than 50 percent of the statewide vote. But the Democrats would need more than 53 percent of the vote in order to win a majority. The three judge federal courts struck down the map for imposing burdens on the representational rights of Democratic voters in these gerrymandered districts. While the Supreme Court has ruled that racial gerrymandering is unconstitutional, it has not provided clear guidance regarding partisan gerrymandering. The Wisconsin Republicans appealed that federal court decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, and on Tuesday, a seemingly divided court... Uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court held oral arguments to debate whether to uphold the finding of unconstitutionality in that case, which could result in lawsuits from both the left and the right in virtually every state in the country, or whether to strike down the lower court's findings entirely or find some other balance in between in a case that, as I said, could affect elections across the entire nation. As our friend John Nichols at The Nation put it succinctly in a tweet after Tuesday's oral argument... How gerrymandering works. Democrats beat Republicans by 1.4 million votes in the race for U.S. House seats. But Republicans get 234 seats to 201 for Democrats. Something's wrong here. The Supreme Court has never thrown out a political map because it is too partisan. In 2004, the last time they had the chance to do so, Justice Anthony Kennedy indicated he might be willing to do so in the future, but that there was no good test at that time to determine how to how to base that judgment if it was too partisan. So is there now such a test? Finally, 13 years after the court last looked at this question. We'll take a quick break and we will come back with a man who literally wrote the book on modern gerrymandering in the U.S., specifically the Republican scheme in 2010 to take over state houses with the specific purpose of redrawing maps with a partisan advantage for the GOP. Dave Daly joins us next right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. To make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Uh, one of the most important cases, we'll find out how important my guest thinks uh, it is, momentarily, uh, was heard before the U.S. Supreme Court this week. Gill V. Whitford, which could change or not the way elections are run across these United States and the partisan advantage that Republicans have figured out how to gain for themselves through partisan gerrymandering like we have never seen before. David Daly is the author of uh, a book on this topic that I cannot uh, say the title of. We'll just call it Rat Flipped: The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's Democracy. He's the former editor-in-chief of Salon. He is now senior fellow at fairvote.org. And uh, he's a man who stood in line outside the U.S. Supreme Court building overnight earlier this week in order to get a seat inside the courtroom. There's only 50 seats available to the public inside the courtroom for Tuesday's landmark oral arguments in Gil v. Whitford. David Daly, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hello, Brad. To be back with you. Uh, listen, I'm not sure. Hopefully, you you caught up on some of your uh, your sleep after being uh, out all night at the Supreme Court trying to get one of 50 seats. Apparently, uh, i fired up. Uh, I guess you were. Uh, listen, I'm I'm not sure how one can quantify or answer this question, David. So I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, you know, with all of the distractions right now, many of them understandable of late, from you know Puerto Rico to Las Vegas. Uh, others of them just Trump. How important do you and other democracy advocates regor- regard this particular uh, this particular case, Gil v. Whitford, uh, that is being decided by the Supreme Court right now?
2: This case is everything. If this case is not decided on the side of a democracy, on the side of competitive elections, there will be nothing to stop Republicans who are likely to be holding the pens in all of these states in 2021 from doing the same thing, only with more sophisticated technology that's developed over the last decade, with better data data analytics skills than they had in 2011, with stronger predictive algorithms to try to figure out where people are going to live and how they're going to vote for the next decade. It will be 2031 before Democrats get another shot at the maps if this case is decided the other way and justice kennedy could be about to step down he will be replaced by president trump he, we are in all likelihood if if justice kennedy does not find his way to a decision with the four liberal justices on this case you would probably have a fifth justice who is ready to call partisan gerrymandering non justiciable and to wipe it off the board as a supreme court issue forevermore it's that important. This country is a very closely divided country. Republicans hold all of the power in Washington, even when they get fewer votes, and they hold 69 of 99 state legislative chambers, often supermajorities in those states, with fewer votes. Gerrymandering is the reason why, we, if we do not stop it, our democracy is at a tipping point.
1: Is it fair to say that this case then is on the level of a Citizens United, which gutted campaign finance laws, or a Shelby County, which gutted the Voting Rights Act? Uh, on this, I think that it, it,
2: I think it's potentially bigger than both of those cases. This is the future of our democracy right here. Um, mm. It has Republicans launched in two thousand and ten a. Strategy to rule From the minority It has worked In state after state You mentioned how In 2012 mm-hmm. Democrats win 1.4 million more votes For the U.S. House But fail to take control of the chamber Let me tell you something scarier If that repeats itself In 2018 As it looks like it probably will Democrats will have gotten more votes For the Senate Mm-hmm for the U.S. House and for the presidency, and they won't control any of them. The party with fewer votes will be in charge of all of these institutions, let alone all of these states. Uh, that is a democratic small-d crisis of epic proportions.
1: What is the uh, difference, David Daly, in a way that uh, would make sense to listeners? What's the difference between racial gerrymandering, which the court has found to be unconstitutional, versus partisan gerrymandering, which they have never struck down? Why has one been deemed unconstitutional, but not the other one to date? Well, the courts have said
2: you have to be really careful if you're using racial data, because they are trying to protect African-American and other Minority voters Mm -hmm. and be sure that they have a voice in Congress. Uh, So it's it's very important that there is a set of case law that is designed to protect against a racial gerrymandering. We also need a set of case law that guards against a partisan gerrymandering, Mm -hmm. especially since right now, at a time when so many minorities and African Americans vote Democratic, it is really really easy. politicians to do a racial gerrymander, but to say, oh, that's just a partisan gerrymander. So the fact that we have a case law on one side and not on the other actually makes both of these more vulnerable.
1: And they actually uh, say that they use that as a defense, right? They say, "Oh, yeah, in this North is Carolina
2: not a, all the time. Absolutely, it, it's not. It's a not perfectly legal gerrymander.
1: because it's not racial. So there's nothing uh, unconstitutional about it. We're just doing this to give us uh, to give uh, ourselves partisan advantage, and they admit it in in those cases. And they come right out to say it. Yeah, and and there's nothing un- unconstitutional currently about that, right?
2: That's exactly right. Um and it's why this case is, is, just, is just so crucial.
1: Is there, a, uh, is there a way to quantify the difference between uh, how, how much partisan gerrymandering is an advantage for Republicans versus Democrats? Democrats still draw the maps in, uh, in many states. Is this a case where, you know, as they, as they sometimes say, both sides do it?
2: Oh, boy. Um, everybody says that both sides do it, but if you want to walk through the numbers... Um, I'm happy to. Um, in 2011, mm-hmm. Republicans controlled on their own, with nobody else in the room, 193 U.S. House seats. Mm-hmm. So you only need 218 for a majority. Republicans drew on their own 193. Democrats drew on their own just a 44. So that's the advantage. But I
1: think the question Uh, that I'm asking, uh, Dave, is uh, when Democrats are in charge, do they do a similar thing? In other words, if they do a similar thing and if this is found... To be unconstitutional, uh, you, uh, I you know I mentioned this uh, this Republican group that is now forming to actually go to court to challenge districts. Are we going to see lawsuits against pretty much every Republican map that is drawn and pretty much every Democratic uh, map that is drawn if this is unconstitutional? I know that was a a, a big point as I understand it in the oral arguments uh, for the uh, for the Republican judges uh, justices. But is there something to that?
2: You might. Um, I think there is something to that. Politicians love to gerrymander. Mm-hmm. Um, if you give the politicians the chance to choose their own voters and to draw their own lines and to protect their own incumbency, of course they're going to do it. Republicans reinvented the gerrymander in 2010 and 2011. This is not the same kind of gerrymander as you had mm. back in the day when it was named after Elbridge Gerry, the old Massachusetts governor back in 1812. Mm-hmm. This is different. This is space age extreme gerrymandering on steroids with the help of the most sophisticated data analytics and, and geomapping technologies imaginable. These guys could not have possibly foreseen the power here. Um, and what it has done is it's given Republicans huge advantages in all of these states that they control. So, like a state like Pennsylvania, a 13 Republicans and five Democrats, even though it's a blue state. Ohio, a very swing state, is represented by 12 Republicans and four Democrats. Michigan is 9-5, even though Democrats in 2012 got a quarter of a million more votes. North Carolina is 10-3. These are not 10-3 and 12-4 states. These are 50-50 states. Mm. And it has made our politics deeply uncompetitive. There's no swing in these swing districts. You have not had a single seat go from red to blue in any of those swing states I mentioned. In addition, you can add Michigan into that into that list. On these maps, no seats have gone from, from red to blue this entire decade. Um, so most of this gerrymandering was done by Republicans. Did... Democrats grabbed a seat in Maryland that they didn't deserve, and they used some of this same technology and the same census data and these same uh, sophisticated programs. So if you, you want to say both sides do it, both sides do it. Republicans probably stole themselves about a 20 to 25 feet advantage wow. through this process in the U.S. House. Democrats took one. So that's about the ratio of this. So, that- so when folks say both sides do it, one side is using a machine gun, the other side's uh, using a
1: water pistol. <laughs> As usual. Uh, let's get into some of the specifics from this... Uh uh, from the oral arguments that you were at the Supreme Court for, David, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts pushed back against the against the uh, the voters attorney, the plaintiff's attorney here. He said that uh, Paul Smith, representing the Wisconsin voters, was asking the courts to effectively take over the process of redistricting from elected officials. And he described uh, that the tests to gauge gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering, offered the challengers uh... mathematical tests and political science theories which he characterized as sociological gobbledygook uh... seem to be uh... <laughs> channeling Antonin scalia there uh, well really right? uh... Little jigger pokery yeah exactly uh... well but th- that was the question that came up thirteen years ago uh... when uh, justice kennedy suggested he'd right. be willing to uh... to have a, a finding here but that there was no basis there was no real good test to determine uh, partisan gerrymandering. So uh, is there now, I know that some well-regarded academic scholars have now come up, put forward a test here. Is that test still sociological gobbledygook, or do we have an actual standard uh, with which courts can uh, answer this question now?
2: It's really funny. Um, Robert used that term, sociological gobbledygook, and he and he mocked his own, his own educational background. It's just perhaps not being sophisticated in a enough to understand all of this sociological gobbledygook. Well, John Roberts graduated Harvard summa cum laude, and then he graduated from Harvard Law School, where he was the managing editor of the Law Review. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he's got the intellectual heft to figure out what is essentially sixth grade math. Um, So there are a number of possible standards here. There is one that's called the efficiency gap, which essentially is a measure of the number of wasted votes, and it compares the number of wasted votes to per side. Um, that's pretty simple, right? Uh, no,
1: actually, it's not. What does that mean, wasted vote?
2: Well, a wasted vote is any vote that does not contribute to a victory. So, if gerrymandering is the art of packing and cracking, of, of, of packing the other side's votes into as few districts as possible, mm-hmm. or spreading them as thinly as you can across as many districts as possible so they can't actually elect a member. The efficiency gap adds up all of the wasted votes for the Democrats, all the wasted votes for the Republicans, divides them by the number of total votes, and says if it's over a certain number, you can tell that something is bad here and you want to take a closer look. So when we say wasted uh,
1: votes, you mean, for example, in, a, in an election, if one party beats the other one, uh, 2,000 votes... To one thousand, that's essentially a thousand wasted votes, or nine hundred and ninety-nine wasted votes uh, were needed exactly, in that case. Exactly.
2: Okay. So, so what Republicans have done in these gerrymanders, especially in states like Ohio, uh, and Pennsylvania, is and Michigan, mm-hmm. you pack all the Democrats into an urban core district that elects a Democrat with about eighty or eighty-five percent of the vote. If a Republican even bothers running, they get ten or twelve a percent mm-hmm. as a result all of the surrounding districts become more republican mm. um so so they elect republicans at you know 57 58% and the democrats get elected at 75% mm-hmm. or 80% of the vote, of the vote essentially what that does is it wastes all of those democratic votes that could go towards electing another candidate in another district but they're being cracked or packed someplace else so mm-hmm. the the efficiency gap is is a useful and simple way to measure whether one side's votes are being treated differently
1: Mm
2: -hmm. than another side's votes.
1: That's the sociological Um, gobbledygook he was referring to, right? A test like that?
2: That is is a part of it. Okay. There are other tests that you can do. Um, For example, there are now computer programs that you can enter all of the basic redistricting criteria Mm -hmm. that a state has to follow. And these programs can spit out hundreds of thousands of sample random maps. You can then measure the partisan bias of those maps versus the partisan bias of the maps that were actually put into play Mm -hmm. by the legislature. And if it's dramatically different in the partisan maps as opposed to the random maps, Mm -hmm. you can tell something's going on. Um, You can do these partisan asymmetry tests which is to say, using your example in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. for example, when a Democrats get 52 percent of the vote, as they do in 2012, but only get 39 of 69 seats, mm-hmm. what happens when it's the other way around? If Republicans mm-hmm. were to get the same percentage, would they get the same number of seats? Right. You can simply compare all of this. I mean, it's it's an eye test. It's a smell test.
1: Right. Um, and, and of course, if they use, and I think this uh, may have been brought up by, I, I think it was uh, Justice Kagan, if they if they use these sophisticated computer programs to map, uh, to create these maps in the I, first place, then you can use... Shouldn't the courts
2: have them at their <laughs> exactly. disposal to try to uncover what they're doing? Uh, no, um, uh, Roberts is engaged in some fancy jiggery-pokery of his own here, yeah trying to obscure and muddle just how simple this is. And the goal, of course, is Anthony Kennedy. Because the court is, while some of the faces have changed, the basic ideological temperament of this court is exactly as it was in the deep case back in 2004. Mm-hmm. You've got four conservatives, and I was in there on, on Tuesday, and I was listening, really curious to see whether the last uh, ten years and whether this last round of redistricting changed any uh, minds amongst the conservative justices, mm-hmm. whether they were open to any of these uh, new academic standards or whether the the anti-small-D democratic effects of the last round of redistricting had had convinced them that this was a threat mm-hmm. that, that had to be taken on. And I didn't see any sense of that. So uh, I think he, he, you have the four conservatives on one side who are... Who, who want no part of having the court involved in this process. You've got the four liberals who are deeply concerned about it and who are looking to find a standard, and then you have Kennedy. So Kennedy in the V's case says, this is a problem and I'm worried about it, but I don't see a clear and manageable standard. Um, so on Tuesday, while everybody was arguing with each other, essentially there was an audience of one. Everybody was aiming at Kennedy. Mm-hmm. The conservatives on the court are trying to show Kennedy that these standards are still not clear. They want him to Mm -hmm. come down on the side of, I'm still not convinced that there's an easy way to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have Justice Gorsuch talk about how these academic standards are are like his steak rub. He said, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a pinch here, a pinch there, lots of ingredients, and no one's willing to say what it is. I can't constitutionalize that. Uh, he said. eh, eh, You have Justice Alito who says, you know, this is just political science. It's not been proven. Uh, I guess they don't believe in political science or science. Um, And he's like, you know, this is just a new paper, the sole efficiency gap thing. There's still lots of questions. Is 2017 really the time to be, you know, turning this into law? I don't think so. And then you have Roberts talking about gobbledygook. They're trying to convince Kennedy that none of these standards are clear and manageable.
1: There, there seem. Meanwhile. Yeah, yeah. Go, ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say there seemed to be some recognition uh, from what I've uh, been able to read of the of the hearing, Some recognition by the court, even the folks on the right, that yes, we may have a problem here. However, we are a uh, courts are not prepared to fix it, and uh, B, the second argument that well, even if this is wrong, even if this is unfair. It's not up to the courts to fix it. It's up to the legislature to fix it, but yeah. uh, in the various, whether it's a federal legislature or state assemblies. But the problem is, if those legislatures themselves are already rigged in these cases, how can those same asking, people be counted exactly. on to fix the problem?
2: You're asking the people who created the problems to come up with the answer. They're not going to do it. The court... Is the only institution that can solve this problem. I understand that John Roberts does not want to invest the authority of the of the court in this. Mm-hmm. The court is the last institution that stands in the way of essentially one party minority rule, and if they don't do something about it now, it's going to be codified for another decade. Were they actually
1: uh, suggesting that this is not uh, the 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 job of the courts that this should be left up to the legislature? We, were I mean were they actually bringing up that question without recognizing the the irony of asking the the, the, the you know the the rigged uh, legislatures to fix the rigged system? Surely that that came up and was laughed out of court, right? These are not men of irony, Brad.
2: Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> but, but When you Robert to... answered his question about sociological gobbledygook, yeah, what he said is, the whole point is you're taking these issues away from democracy, and you're throwing them into the courts, pursuant to, and it may be simply my educational background, but I can only describe it as sociological gobbledygook. Mm-hmm. This is not a man with a clear understanding of what... Has been happening in these state Legislatures You're taking these issues away from democracy This is not a democracy Mm. That is the very problem here These legislatures are are Completely anti-democratic They have created One party rule that is not Defeatable at the ballot box So, I mean in Michigan uh, this last decade You've had elections in 2012 2014 and 2016 For for the state house Democrats have gotten more total votes every time. Republicans have kept control. Um, this is the case in state after state. These bodies are not capable of fixing the problem. They have enshrined this problem. Mm-hmm. We need the court here to come in and fix a democracy.
1: Justice Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg had asked a question that uh, that that sort of speaks to what I hear, Personally, from a lot of voters, uh, a lot when when they explain why they don't bother to vote, she had asked uh, the uh, the defendants in this case, the uh, the the Republican Wisconsins, uh, if you can stack a legislature in this way, what incentive is there for a voter to exercise his vote? She said whether it's a Democratic district or a Republican district, the result is preordained in most of the districts. And she added, what becomes of the precious right to vote? Uh, that that seems like it's right on the money. Uh, aside from the partisan Powerful. advantages or disadvantages here, no matter which party is or isn't doing it, isn't that really the case, or, or at least that it should be, that uh, people are very, very quickly for a lot of reasons. But this is one of them, losing confidence in their own democracy and saying, you know what? Why bother voting? It's all preordained. Uh, It's not worth my time.
2: They are right to be losing confidence in their democracy. Um, And I mean, this is why the court has to step in or else the country is going to lose faith in democracy. And we are also going to lose what comes with competitive Elections in competitive districts, which is a real exchange of ideas, which is actual government. Um, I mean, all of these states are, uh, that have these gerrymandered legislatures, they then go after the voting rights, they mm-hmm. go after labor rights, they go after women's rights. What you, The kinds of politics that we are seeing in this country, the, the kinds of extreme politics that Most people do not actually back are being pushed into power by an extreme base of one side. Uh, That is the partisan impact of what has happened here. Uh, But if we are to talk about this in a small-D democratic way, I mean, neither side should be doing this. We have got to come up with a better way of drawing districts. We've got to be sure that folks count, that participation is high and that the representation is fair and that it actually represents the sentiment of the country. I mean, James Madison talked about the House being, a you know, a replica of the of the public in miniature. We are so far from that, and we've got to find a way to get back to it. Gerrymandering is toxic to it.
1: David, uh, last question here. I'm short on time. After uh, watching the oral arguments uh, on Tuesday, Is there any doubt in your mind after hearing from all of the justices and so forth, is there any doubt in your mind about which way this case would likely have gone if Republicans had not stolen the seat vacated by Antonin Scalia, held open for a year uh, by Republicans until Trump's nominee, uh, Neil Gorsuch, could be uh, strong armed into the into the position uh, would we be looking at a completely different uh, question at this point? Had uh, Scalia been replaced by President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, instead?
2: There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, this would not even be a question. We wouldn't be concerned about Kennedy being the fifth vote. There would already be a fifth vote in favor of fair elections. Um, mm. And it's one of the things that is just you know so bitterly frustrating and disappointing about this political moment. Um, I mean, gerrymandering in many ways you know, cost that seat. Um, mm. the Democrats uh, won that last presidential election by 2.8 million votes. Republicans won the Electoral College by 80,000 votes in three gerrymandered states in which uh, voting rights were so severely curtailed and suppressed that it, it calls the, the results of those states into question. Um, so, um, and if Justice Kennedy steps down now and he's replaced by a President Trump, um, or if, you know, God forbid something happens to uh, one of the other justices, if Justice Breyer or Justice Ginsburg steps down or falls into ill health, uh, this could all tip into another direction very fast. It is so, you know, uh, sometimes I sound apocalyptic and, uh, but this is a... Dangerous
1: and scary moment. Yeah, no, and I think uh, sounding apocalyptic right now is is uh, a good idea. And frankly, uh, I I wish more had been uh, ringing the alarm before the election, as we were for many many months uh, trying to water. warn people about exactly this. Elections do have consequences, and frankly, this one could result in well, Republican control of state and federal legislatures for decades beyond where it already has. Uh, David, uh, very quickly, the uh, ruling here, uh, uh, an opinion, is is due when? Best guess, do we know?
2: Most likely June.
1: Okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll buckle up for that next year, I guess. Uh, David, uh, really appreciate you joining us here today. David Daly, the author of what we call Rat Flipped, it's actually it has a different name. You'll have to look it up yourself. The true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. You can also fi- uh, follow Dave, uh, Dave on the Twitters at DaveDaily3 and, of course, uh, at FairVote.org, where he is now a senior fellow. David, always great talking to you, my friend. Thanks for joining us today. We'll, I suspect, talk to you again in the near future. Thanks for all you do, Brad. Thank you, brother. Okay, running way late, so my thanks to our producer Desi Doyen uh, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. As I say, it's an honor and a privilege to have you here. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com if you like. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the BradBlog. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world!